episode 108 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 18th of January 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. And we must start with an outrage that occurred two episodes ago on this show. I was robbed of a point. It turns out that Clear Linux has been covered in other publications, specifically Ars Technica, specifically by my friend Jim Salter. But that's not the point. I was robbed of a point, and therefore I didn't completely lose the prediction, so fuck you all. Nah, it doesn't count. <laughs> no, it doesn't count. I said that, you know, regularly and whatever, and it's very much not in the spirit of it, but he got in touch with me and said, well, I, I had the point there ready for you. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so let's talk about some news then. The first one is Ubiquity, who we talked about it feels like a year ago, maybe, with the router gear and stuff, they've had a bit of a data breach. And I'd like to again thank Will for suggesting this brand of <laughs> wireless access point, which I have... Is this the second time that something bad has happened with it? Thanks again for that. Anytime. Did you both get the email then? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not even sure why I've got any... Um, credentials with them i I don't maybe i registered on their forum or something but i as far as i can tell i've never signed up for any cloud stuff with them so i don't know what what's been stolen they kind of force you to sign up so you can provision the thing in the first place even if it's local it still has its tentacles off to their cloud does it i i've just got a local username and password yeah i'm pretty sure i was forced to do it when i signed up well, when I got this email that said, we're sorry, it's not our fault, a, a big boy did it and run away, <laughs> I went onto my Ubiquity management thing and, and went to log in, and it's just a local username and um, a, a, a fairly basic password. There's no, as far as I can tell, no links to email addresses or their their other services. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I set up an account long enough ago that I've not been caught, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I pretty much had to. And I mean, there is the backup feature, which, I mean, you don't have to use it, but it is handy because I hadn't it set up the first time that my Pi I was using blew up and then I had to redo everything again, which prompted me to then start doing the backups automatically. Um, yet another website, which will show up on the Have I Been Pwned webpage again and Firefox plugin. So, yay. Good job you use the same password all the time, though, eh? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to remember it any other way, am I? <laughs> yeah, so a bit of a PSA there. So it seems like they're not really the go-to choice anymore after this. Or maybe that's being dramatic, but they seem to have had one too many slip-ups for my taste, so I don't think I would be buying them. So I don't know. If there's any better companies that we should buy things from, do let us know. Where do I even start with this next one? The BBC has a thing called Bite Size, which is essentially educational material for kids of about 14, 15, something like that kind of age. And as part of their ethical, legal, cultural, and environmental concerns course under computer science and computer systems, they've got open source and proprietary software. Under the definition of open source software, the very first fucking thing that it says is open source software is software that is free of copyright. <laughs> what? No. And it has some advantages and some disadvantages. Some of the disadvantages are there is no guarantee that it works properly as there is no requirement for anyone to ensure it is bug-free. Well, I mean, to be fair, that is true. And they just do not 
understand. It's like someone who's never really even read the Wikipedia page of fucking open source wrote this. And it makes me wonder, like, if this is the standard of education for this particular subject, then how can you trust anything else? Yeah, especially, remember though, you have to get proprietary software in order to get patches which are provided free of charge which fix the bugs which may occur in it. Yeah. And they'll help you. So I, what I would say to could the person who wrote this in the BBC please contact Microsoft for my fucking license from <laughs> Windows 10? <laughs> I'm pretty confident that the person who wrote this article works for Microsoft. <laughs> proprietary software is software that is copyrighted, which means it can only be obtained by paying for a license. What? Tell that to fucking Skype and Slack and fucking all the other million free, as in beer, but proprietary applications. I, it, this was written by someone who is just completely clueless. And this is the BBC. This is not some, you know, two-bit operation. Or, well, maybe it is. <laughs> Devil's advocate on this, though. Is that what the exam requires them to say? Like, you know those daft things where if you don't, answer it the way they expect you to, you're going to fail mm. the exam, even though... That would be even worse. That would be far worse. Yeah. I think literally every bullet point on that page is wrong. Yeah, proprietary software advantages. The product should be free of bugs. If <laughs> bugs still exist, updates known as patches are often provided free of charge. Say so that to cyberpunk owners. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the thing that really pissed me off about this is that the BBC have done... And as far as I know, continue to do some really good work in open source. Mm. Like the BBC Microbit, for example, the the source code is up on GitHub. The designs of the circuit board are up on GitHub. Um, they've even got bbc.co.uk slash open source. They've got a website, their own internal website, that talks about the project that they use and that they create. And so clearly the person who was tasked with writing this uh, in their lunch break has not bothered to go out and speak to the rest of the BBC and find out like what they need to know about this. And, well, I think that the quality of reporting at the BBC has gone downhill. It's uh, one rung above Heat magazine now, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Pictures aren't as good. <laughs> <laughs> and let's not start getting too nitpicky here, but they didn't even specify a background colour on this page. Oh, God, here we go. Well, look... I know that it's my fucked up Firefox profile that I still haven't fixed after all these years, but I haven't fixed it for a reason. It shows me lazy web devs. The front end devs who did this were too fucking lazy to specify white. And to me, that speaks volumes. But most of the BBC website is like that, to be fair. It's not specific to this bite-sized thing, but it still pisses me off. I'm frantically going to see if my web page has got fucking background colour set. I don't know. <laughs> Yours has specified. Fucking yes. It looks like it's Get from it the you. 90s, but... Fucking too right it is. <laughs> if you need a flashy website to sell your stuff, then you don't need my services, because trust me, none of that will be flashy either. It does scale to whatever width I have the browser, so well done on that one. Thank you. And it works in Firefox, obviously. Although it does say copyright 2010 to 2020, so that means it's out of copyright. Mm, steal it. Fuck. Yeah. Oh, no. That's it. I'm taking all your content. Shit. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. 
Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. I recently moved our website over to Linode, and I'm really happy with it. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. So Wikipedia is 20 years old. Yeah, it's amazing to think that Wikipedia has been around for that long. It, it is just such a piece of the furniture now, a piece of internet furniture that it gets used you know, even even just by me, I don't know dozens of times a day just to look stuff up and to read the article that you link to here about how it's grown over time and how busy it is and and what a success story it is for the open culture and internet culture in general we see a lot about misinformation in the news these days and it's nice to know that a a genuine educational tool that is free for anybody to use and has had such a good impact on the world and it's yeah a nice bit of news to read in these otherwise dark times yeah and the this article talks about some of the detractors who cite examples of ridiculous shit that gets posted on there or gets edited on there but they usually only last about 10 minutes before they're reverted or edited to be true or whatever and you've got to have your citations in there and everything. It's it's an idea that shouldn't work. When I first heard about it, I thought, that is ridiculous. That won't work. And it just sort of has worked somehow through, I suppose, good management and good moderation policies. One of the key things I liked about this was the fact that they said that the lack of commercialization from the very start um it actually led people to sort of form a community and to actually do the work as volunteers and not feel like they're like unpaid interns essentially. Um, and that has kind of continued to this day where you don't feel like you're actually doing work to make some guy rich. So I think it's quite good. Yeah. I have criticized them before about them always begging for money, even though they've got loads of it, but they are a nonprofit. And like you say, it's, it's never been about having a bunch of ads and tracking and all the rest of it in it. It's, always just been about volunteer labor essentially but people not being exploited people contributing in a very similar way to um open street map yeah and those are two examples of pretty old school internet projects that have survived and persisted and thrived and are doing really well and we need to see more of this maybe but it, it feels like a very old internet thing and 20 years is a long time in internet years isn't it so could we ever see something like this again i hope so but i fear not let's talk about Elasticsearch and the company elastic that makes it they have doubled down on open as they say this is part two that we'll link to and this is them moving away from the apache 2 license over to either the server-side public license or the Elastic license. It's up to you. And these are the anti-cloud licenses. It's source available. It's not technically open source. They are licenses that let you see the code, do what you want with it, use it how you like, as long as you don't package it up and sell it as a service. And if you do sell it as a service, then you are forced to open source any changes you make, but also the entire stack serving that. So this is basically fuck you AWS license 
So what do we think about this? It solves a problem. People often say, oh, they should just use the AGPL. But that doesn't solve the problem because the AGPL doesn't stop you using the code and selling it as a service. It just forces you to upstream any changes that you make or at least publish any changes that you make. But what do you think? I mean, it's not open source, but it's open source in all the ways that matter, isn't it? Kind of. There is a sort of a bit of a gray, vague area where they say, oh, yeah, obviously, if you're a third party company who's doing work and you use Elasticsearch, you're not a cloud provider doing this. Therefore, it's okay. It's like, well, that's in your FAQ, but not in the license. So I'm not entirely sure I'm going to just believe you on that one. So, yeah, I don't know. It's not open source. Um, I can understand why they did it, but I'm not entirely sure I like it either, though. Have they given a reason for doing it? Uh, scared of Amazon, I think, that they're going to come and steal their lunch and sell it. Have they actually come out and said that, or have they just said, like, skirted around it? They do actually explicitly mention Amazon. They say, we did this for a few reasons. It allowed us to engage with our paying customers in the same way we engage with our community in the open. It also allowed us to build free features that empower our users without providing those capabilities to companies that take our products and provide them as a service, like Amazon Elasticsearch, and profit from our open source software without contributing back. Because how they've kind of tried to sweeten this deal is making the entire product available under this license rather than the kind of open core model. But it's not OSI approved. It's not open source. It is proprietary in the most technical of senses, but it is source available. You can see that source code. You can contribute to it. You can use it in almost all the ways that you could open source. We've seen this problem cropping up so many times over the last few years. I have a feeling that somebody predicted something like this a few years ago, but the constant competition between Amazon and open source uh, is just driving this massive wedge between all of these really good projects that wanted to do things in the right way and have been taken advantage of by the likes of AWS and uh, Google and so on and so on to the point where their business model is under threat, their the future of their company is under threat, and they have to take these relatively drastic actions to try and protect their business and the technology that they've produced. I don't know where this is going to end. I suspect it will end in uh, all of these independent projects having to shut down because they can't compete with Amazon. I don't think that's true. I think that with these licenses, they will get around the problem. And it'll make them probably less popular. I mean, I've had people say to me that my company won't use Elasticsearch now. We won't build that into our product because we're just too worried about getting stung by this license. So I think that adoption will suffer. But I don't think that these projects will just die. I mean, we've seen it with like MongoDB and Redis, stuff like that. And they're still around. It's just this is the only solution to a very difficult problem, I think. I'm finding it really difficult to have an opinion one side or the other on this because it's such an important subject. And I think really it comes down to the fact that I don't think open source licenses have ever been fully equipped to deal with the cloud. And I think maybe we should, you know, go away and consider what we think about it and maybe come back and talk about it on another episode. It's important enough. Yeah, it is. And I think you're right about the licenses not being um, fit for purpose, really, in this day and age. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, 
the performance monitoring and analytics solution for real-time visibility into your Linux environment. Combining metrics, traces, and logs in one unified platform allows you to get a bird's-eye view of your entire infrastructure. You can also see any underutilized cloud or on-premises servers via the real-time auto-generated host map. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts eliminate false positives and make sure that you only receive alerts on issues that matter. You can automatically detect unanticipated outliers, anomalies, and errors with Watchdog, the auto-detection engine that surfaces performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. Start your free Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late-night-linux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late-night-linux. A quick mention for Galaxy upcycling at home. This is something that Samsung has announced at CES, which is sort of going on at the moment. I don't know, it's all virtual and stuff, so I, I don't know. Anyway, the idea is very simple. Repurposing old phones as IoT devices. Wow. <laughs> Obviously, having Samsung's proprietary software on there is probably a bad idea, but at least this is a big company thinking about e-waste in a, a good and positive way, planting the idea of reusing old devices. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily use an old Galaxy phone that has had no updates in three years or whatever as an IoT device. But hopefully this plants the seed, as I said. I'd love it if lots of companies like Samsung, when a device becomes obsolete, they'd unlock the bootloader and make it yeah. truly easily to, easy to install some open source OS, and then you can do what you want. Yeah. And they had a couple of examples of, you know, pet care solutions with the light sensor and stuff. But I think just this idea of if you could take an old phone and do something useful with it you know these phones have got cameras decent specs generally and people have upgraded because of a better camera or whatever but you, you can use an old phone as a, a you know ip webcam or something well even more than that are you look at some of these galaxy devices they're up there with a raspberry pi well i don't know i'm guessing now raspberry pi 3 maybe maybe even more than that these are really powerful arm devices that Maybe the battery's gone, maybe the screen's gone, but you could plug it in and you could still do actual compute on these things. If they would open up access to the devices once they decided that they're no longer useful, there would be a whole lot of just cool stuff you could do with these things. Yeah, and with the uh, repair.eu website, us in the EU can uh, <laughs> get those devices fixed and not have to go back to the manufacturer to get them done, so... I really love the idea of a formalized program to allow you to, in a similar way to write to repair, to allow you to access the device as a computing device instead of as a uh, consumer electronics device. They decide that it's no longer viable for them to do anything with. They just hand it back to the community, as it were, and unlock them and you do what you like. It would be a real step forward in hacker rights. Yeah. It's not as simple as that, though, is it? Because if you totally open-sourced a phone, let's say, made it totally open hardware, well, you couldn't really do that because the, the later revisions of Qualcomm chips or whatever, they're not totally new, are they? There's a lot of shared code and stuff, so it would make it very complicated to do that. But I think, at bare minimum, open the bootloader, at least 
have the drivers available as blobs or whatever so that people can make custom ROMs for it. That, I think, you could potentially mandate. On to a bit of admin then, and thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really, really is appreciated, especially now that we've gone weekly. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed on Patreon, which is now twice as valuable. And latenightlinux.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. We had the first community meetup on the 1st of January, and that went well and uh, was recorded. And that is now being published, or at least some of it has been published, as Late Night Linux Extra 13. So we'll link to that in the show notes. The next mumble get-together is going to be on the 29th of January at 10 p.m. UK time. There's details at latenightlinux.com slash mumble, so check that out. And all you need is a mumble client, headphones, and push to talk, and then just turn up and we'll have a chat about stuff and we'll record it again and see if we get some more stuff to put out on the extra feed. Let's do some feedback then. Robert wrote in to say, every Linux podcast has become obsessed with all the different containers available, but I still prefer virtual machines in Linux. My two questions are, do you guys use VMs or containers more? And secondly, you still hear some chat about KVM, but what ever happened to Zen? I like VMs. Containers are good, but I do like proper segregation for a lot of services. Uh, I have often set up a VM to run separate containers. Uh, Zen, I have no idea. I don't know whatever happened to that. I mean, it's still there, but... But KVM's just the default now. Yeah, I mean, it is an excellent, excellent piece of software. But yeah, I just, I never really use Zen. Yeah, I, I use lots of virtual machines, probably more virtual machines than I do containers, though I do use a few containers for like um, like a web server running on a little Nook box I've got here at the house, which is just easier to maintain in a container in LexD. But um, for my work, I have like, I don't know, 20 different distros, in not running constantly, but it's so great to have as close to a native experience as possible for those distributions and the things that you want to try on them that you just can't do in a container. It's still a really essential part of um, working with Linux. It's still great. It's very handy for isolating uh, workstations for a client if I'm doing remote work for a potential client Mm. um, to set up a VPN to them in that virtual machine and then off I can go keep it segregated from everything else as well. I think virtual machines are best. I say best. I prefer virtual machines when I'm going to be interacting with that machine. When it's going to be some controller, some script, some other machine interacting with it, then containers are definitely the way to go because you get that much higher density, less overhead, and you can spin them up. Well, rather, a machine can spin them up and tear them down as quick as you know you can blink. So that's my preferred demarcation point is if I'm going to have to interact with it, then I prefer a VM and you get the whole top to bottom stack. Whereas if it's something that uh, a machine is going to interact with, then I would go for a container. I still feel like containers are very hacky and very sort of start them up and then jump in Mm. to edit something. And I don't know. I think Docker is Linux for people that don't want to learn Linux. <laughs> Often a lot of the packages I've seen that have been packaged with Docker have been thrown together a little bit. And that might be just really biased, sort of unfair view, but it really does look like it's like one of those things of, geez, just do that until you get it to work. Oh, okay, it's working. That package it. It's good. That reminds me, actually, that 
I use this thing called Audio Visualizer Python to make the videos for YouTube for this. It's the little sort of, um, you know, animation thing. I don't know, Visualizer anyway for it, just so that there's some movement because the YouTube algorithm prefers movement apparently rather than a still image. But that has stopped working on Ubuntu 20 or 4 since I upgraded. And just my first thought was, well, I tried to fix it in about five minutes and then just couldn't. I think it's missing uh, PyQt4 or something, but it just, I couldn't easily fix it. So my go-to was, well, I'll just spin up an 18.04 VM and you get almost native performance. I, was, I can convert it at nearly six times real time. Uh, I used to be able to on 18.04 on bare metal and it's like maybe 5.6 or seven times real time now with the VM. So that's good enough for me. And so, yeah, I think anything desktopy like that, VM is just the go-to for me. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop down at checkout and you can select late night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. KDE Corner then, and there's some bad news for a change, it's not the usual goodness. And that is that we've now seen the first LTS of Qt that has gone proprietary. And this is causing a bit of controversy. I have a prediction about this. So obviously I want it to go terribly wrong just so I can get a point. But I don't want it to go terribly wrong. So my my desktop is ruined. I'd be interested in hearing what Graham thinks about this. So this has come up time and time again over the entire history of Qt, right, indeed, right from the very, very beginning, you know, the thing that spawned GTK and the GNOME desktop. And I don't feel like through all of its iterations, through all of its ownership, they've ever really been able to get to grips with the open source side of their business, the open source side of their offering, despite all the many, many things KDE and Neon Plasma and all that has done for it. They've just never been able to kind of balance it off and I think this was all it was always going to come to this um I really wish it wouldn't I think it's a mistake from the cute company and I think perhaps the best possible outcome is that it forks and that would be a, a disaster for everyone do you think it'll happen then well they, they have backpedaled um on over the over the two decades or however long it's been they have tried these things before if you remember like the proprietary profiling modules oh god yeah um and then their support model for certain things and eventually they have backpedaled on all of those things and i think that's because they see the uptake in cute diminishing significantly um when when it loses its kind of open source kudos um and yeah hopefully that would happen this in this case um but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's an anomaly just because of bad timing with the fact that 6 is not ready and not used mm. fully and 15 is just ending. I don't know. Maybe. Well, I guess we'll have to kind of see, though. But Yeah, I think I'd read that 50% of the modules have only been ported to 6 and yeah. it's still in a very beta state, alpha state for those that are there. Yeah, I think 5 went on 5.3, somebody had mentioned before. So 
yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see. All right. Well, good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is this thing exists. The bad news is I've not got a fucking clue how to say it, so I failed him. How do you pronounce this? <laughs> well, just because it has a K at the start does not mean I instantly know how to say it, but my geology part of my degrees tells me it's Kenonite, but I could be wrong. Kenoite? Go on then. Fedora Kenoite is what I would say. Kenoite is uh, light blue copper silicate material, apparently, and it looks really beautiful if you do an image search for it. But anyway, that's irrelevant. What is relevant is that this is essentially Fedora Silver Blue, but instead of GNOME, it's the Plasma desktop. Yeah, so read-only desktop for the win. Yeah, immutable and um, transactional updates and all of the good stuff that uh, we have with Silver Blue. But now with a decent desktop, eh? Well, yeah, I mean, it has to be done properly. I mean, not for me, because I don't know. I just, I don't get on with Fedora too well. I, it's just different. Um, if you're so used to using Debian-based systems, it just seems too wrong. Um, but I think we should mention it anyway. So try it out if that is your thing. Yeah. And friend of the show, Drew, he uses Silverblue quite a bit and tries it out and he thinks it's good. And But he's a real Gnome fan. And it, apparently it has developed massively over the last couple of years. It's an idea that, you know, they've been working on and refining. And it is good to see that now we've got the Plasma version of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a good idea. I mean, I think that is a, definitely a way it should go. I mean, you have a, a mutable system you can't break and it's going to be far more secure from a lot of things. So, uh, yeah, we'll just... I don't like change. <laughs> <laughs> you just stick to neon for now then. Too damn right I will. Packages all the way, none of them snaps. <laughs> well, one quick thing before we get out of here. I had random black screens, and I don't know what this problem was. The other night we were watching a local file, and every 10 or 15 minutes the screen would just go black, and I'd move the mouse around, and then it would come back to life. Was it the screensaver? Well, no, because previous to this, I've never had that problem. Not once. This is the same ropey graphics card that you've complained about in various other ways. It doesn't work with certain projectors and such forth, right? Well, it's yeah, it doesn't work with certain desktop environments and stuff. It's it's a bit strange. It always used to, but recently there's been a, a regression somewhere that I don't know what it is. But I don't understand. I checked the power management and the screensaver, and it sh- it should not be going black. But the weird thing is it only happened the other night and since then it seems to have been fine. So it's not even something I can repeat and find a proper bug for. So if anyone knows what that was and how I can stop it happening ever again, then please let me know. But with that, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week with some of your feedback and some follow-up. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>